0: This is an audio recording of a conversation with Mr Stuart Spensley of Golden Beach Caloundra, Queensland, Australia, held at the Queensland Air Museum Pathfinder Drive Caloundra on the 5th of August 2022 with QAM volunteers Ted Gray and Gary Hills. Stuart, could you start for us by telling us where and when you were born?
1: Well, I was born on the 24th of December 1932 and I was born in the, in the, in the uh, Martyr Hospital in Brisbane.
2: Were you from uh, Brisbane at the time, uh, Stuart?
1: No, my father was managing a cattle station called Quamby, just north of Gloncurry.
2: And how long were you there?
1: Probably only... I was three months old when I went back there after being born and and probably another 12 months and then he was transferred to a cattle station north of Claremont.
2: And from there?
1: Well, at that stage I had acquired two sisters and we were getting on a bit and my father was thinking about education and everything because we were using the School of the Air and correspondence. So he decided to... um, leave the Australian Estates, that's the company that he was working for, and we came down to Brisbane. And that was just um, just before
0: the war. Now, Australian Estates, tell us what uh, what work you did with Australian Estates. Well, they had all these properties
1: uh, and they used to manage them. They were, you know, probably deceased estates and that sort of thing and they had their own managers in and my father was managing uh, Quamby and Kilcummon.
2: So uh, you've moved around a little bit, mainly in the country area?
1: No, when, when we came to Brisbane, uh, that was just prior to the war. My father joined the army, but he didn't last too long because he'd been riding a horse all his life and he wasn't too good at, at the marching. So
2: <coughs> he
1: went, when he was discharged from the army... We bought a, he bought a uh, dairy farm up here at Mullaney.
2: Oh, so, a lot more local now?
1: Yeah. So, I spent uh, all my formative years in Mullaney. And, when, and I, when I got to the secondary school, I went to Brisbane and I was a boarder. And,
2: and, and how did that go, being a country boy?
1: Not too good. I was a real scrubber. <laughs>
2: OK, well, you survive that, and then what happened? Yeah.
1: Well, uh, <clears throat> and then I was tossed out in the outside world and I thought I didn't know what I was going to do, but my uncle, he was a manager of the Australian Estates here in Brisbane, and he suggested you should do wool classing. So he got me a job with a firm called Grazcos, which was short for Graziers Cooperative Shearing Company. And um, the... The stations would, uh, get the, a classroom to do the, the main clip, but there'd be little bits and pieces left over. And the idea was they'd send it down to Greskos, and we could we'd get it from all uh, <coughs> other stations in uh, in the, in the uh, country, and we'd make it up into a, a, a sizable lot. Say, you know, the bins would carry probably fifty bales, and the buyers were interested in you know in buying the. They were they had say for argument's sake they had to buy a hundred bales of of 3a they'd rather buy it in the one lot rather than chase it around so that's our gross cost and there's another crowd called ungra they did the
0: same thing and and I think for those of our, of our listeners who aren't familiar with that part of our history what what was the job of a classer
1: well you you'd get the wool and you'd look at it and say and you'd what they do now is, is they measure it in microns, but we used to do like three A and two A and the three A was the finest wool and and then there was it got right down to uh, in those days the catch cry was a pound a pound. And people would send in dead wool, that's a and our sheep had died in the paddock, so they'd go and get the, the fleece and stuff it in a in a bale and send it to us. And they even used the dags. There was a little bit of wool in the dags, and they'd crush that out. That's how, how valuable it was yeah.
0: yeah, So a pound sterling for a pound weight yeah, of wool. Yeah. And your job was to determine the good quality. That's right. Of the wool and bale that together. Was that right?
1: Yeah. Well, mm. Yeah. Well, when I first started there, we I was on the barrow. They had these big, big wicker baskets on a barrow, and you'd go around, and the classes a big oh it'd be 10 or 20 of them there, they'd have a table, they'd pull the stuff out and then they'd throw it in a heap and that would be the 3A heap and then it'd be another one 2A. So you had to go and pick this up and put it in the, in the appropriate We had great big bins uh, to, to store this stuff and then the, the wool presses would come along, pull it out and bail it. And um, so I started off on the floor like that and then... we used to go to the technical college down in George Street at night to do the wool classing and I I qualified there as as a wool classer so then I graduated to actually classing the wool uh, back back at uh, Grasscross Big Wool Store. Mm.
2: And about what uh, time of the, or what vintages are we talking about? What years, uh, Stuart?
1: Well, um, and... uh, uh, I left school in uh, in forty forty nine fifty, and so it's sort of the forty nine fifty era. That's when I was I was, I was training for all yeah. class years, yeah.
2: and that was about the time there was some nasty things happening in Korea too, wasn't it?
1: Well, that that's right. The Korean Wars was in was started, and also they uh, <coughs> introduced national service, and that was the first intake of National Service was in 51
0: years. So because we don't have that anymore, could you explain to us what was involved in National Service, how long did you have to serve and what were the options available to you?
1: Well, actually, the first National Service was really a bit of a joke. You had to do six months. Now, you could either go um, in the army, you'd, you'd do three months in camp and then the other three months you'd make up by going With a citizen's citizen's, uh, military, um, and you'd have to go once a fortnight or once a month to make up the three months. The Air Force, you you could do the six months straight off, and the same with the Navy. And um, I was fortunate enough to get into the Air Force.
0: Air Force was your choice, your first choice?
1: Well... Because the Korean War was going, I, right or wrong, I wanted to go to the Korean War, but my mother wouldn't join the air force and go to the Korean War. But my mother wouldn't sign the the papers. So the next thing was I'd saved I'd saved up a bit of money.
0: Well, just before you go on, why why was your mother reluctant to sign oh, you well, into the air force? We,
1: they'd lost some relatives in the air force and friends, and and that sort of was still a bit raw in the early, in the early fifties that. Uh, that's why they wouldn't wouldn't sign it. But um, anyway, I'd saved up some money, and uh, I decided to learn to fly. And also, because I was being, I knew I'd be going to be called up. I thought if I had a pilot's license, I'd have had a better chance of getting into the air force. Mm. Well, it really the, the extra flying that we got. They got fifty hours, and they, the Aero Club had a contract to do the the initial flying all these fellas but 50 hours was 50 hours
0: yeah and what year is that that you began flying
1: well 51
0: 1951 yeah and the Korean War went through till 1953 I think something like um, that years yeah okay so what happened uh, like what are those first hours of flying like what were you flying and you know what was involved see that airplane up there <laughs> Tiger Moth Stuart's pointing to a model of a Tiger Moth yes uh,
1: you could buy a Tiger Moth Relatively cheap because the Air Force didn't, didn't want them all uh, after the war. That's what the, all the aero clubs used. And it wasn't until later years when when dollars American dollars became a bit freer that, that they bought things like Cessnas and Pipers. But um, they were a good training machine and uh, everybody learned to untie the boss.
0: Do you remember the first time you flew and took control of the aircraft? Do you remember that day?
1: Yes, well, actually, I I used to go out early. My father lent me his car so I could go to the aerocop and fly and then I'd drive Mm -hmm. to work. And after about, I think, I can't remember exactly, but about six or seven hours, the instructor got out and said, OK, fly it round and do a circuit on your own. And that uh, that was something.
0: Did you know from then on that that's what you were going to do?
1: Oh, I knew from the first time I got in, you know, my first instruction period, that that's what I wanted to do, yes.
2: Mm. So uh, from the Tiger Moths and the training, you had your licence. Yes. Um, did you use that licence at any stage um, professionally or...
1: N- n- no, there was, was only a private licence. You right. had to have a commercial licence to uh, fly professionally.
2: So did you go on and get a commercial license?
1: I did. Well what happened then? I got in the air force. Uh, I finally got the extra 50 hours and I'd saved up a bit of deferred pay. So when I came out, I blew it all at the Aero Club getting more hours and um, I got my commercial license. But in the meantime, 23 Squadron, it was a, a fighter squadron in Brisbane that flew uh, Wirraways and Mustangs. And I managed to get into that as well, and also I was doing an instructor's course. So I got a job at the Aero Club as a flying instructor. So that was my first commercial uh, job as a in aviation. And did you fly
2: the uh, the Mustang?
1: Oh yes, yes. Fun it was. Yes.
0: yes. <laughs> and being an instructor, what was that like?
1: I, I liked instructing. And then years later, when I became training captains, uh, training captain on uh, various aircraft, I got a lot of satisfaction out of it,
2: yes. Very good. And where did you develop from there, from the flying um, club?
1: Well, um, about that time, TAA, uh, which is Trans-Australia Airlines, was after, was sort of uh, upgrading and they were getting... Um, were recruiting quite a lot of pilots. And I was at a job instructing at the Aero Club at that stage, and my mates all went to TA. And and there was another instructor there that I used to fly with, and I was quite friendly with him, and he'd he'd flown bloody vengeances out of Cooktown uh, during the war on sub-patrols out of, out of the Coral Sea. And he said you're mad if you don't join uh, TAA. How would, you, how would you feel when you're 50 sitting up in the front of a tiger moth in a cold winter's morning? And that sort of got through to me and I, I applied for TAA.
0: That convinced you. Did, yeah. Now, TAA was, a, was an icon of Australian aviation was, for yeah. many years, yeah. wasn't it, from 1946 till I think 1986, and it was part of the, the two airline competition With program. That, TAA yeah, yeah. Um, and so as a company, it evolved over the years. You joined TAA in what, 19... 15, 10, 56. 56, okay. (laughs) And uh, by that time, so the headquarters for TAA was in Melbourne. It Correct, yes. But you were based in Queensland still. Well, they had
1: bases in in Brisbane, Sydney and Adelaide.
0: Okay. And explain to us the contract or the arrangement that TAA had with the Royal Flying Doctor Service.
1: Well, um... They supplied the pilots and then each station had a a ground engineer to service the the flying doctor aeroplane, but he also serviced the airline aircraft coming through if necessary. So uh, that's how the...
0: uh So a lot of the work that was available to a TAA pilot would have necessarily overlapped with Royal Flying Doctor Service throughout Western Queensland and the Channel Country and so on. Was,
1: you had to. You did a two-year term with the Flying Doctor, and the company put the appointed you and said, "Well, you're going to Charleville as a Flying Doctor pilot." But in my case, I, I, when I um, <coughs> after I checked out on the DC3, I did my tra- uh, first officer training. I came back to Brisbane from Melbourne. And almost immediately I was sent to Charleville because in those days we had a, a DC3 crew based there and we used to do the Channel Country runs down to Broken Hill to Lee Creek and to Birdsville, And you'd, you'd overnight at those places and come back. And uh, the first officer that had been out there, he resigned and uh, so that's, that was a vacancy, so I was sent out there. And I'd only been there a short while and they decided that um, I should be a Flying Doctor pilot as well. And in those days, we had one permanent Flying Doctor pilot, and so um, it, we evolved this scheme, where we'd swap around fortnight about. I'd fly the DC-3 for a fortnight, and he'd fly the driver, and then he'd come and fly the DC-3 for a fortnight, and I'd fly the driver. And, and as I was single in those days... I was used as a relief pilot in Cloncurry and Charters Towers. And uh, so I spent um, um, the best part of six years as a flying doctor
2: pilot. Mm. Did you um, fly the DC-3 into Birdsville? I did. Must have been fun.
1: I've got a hundred overnights in Birdsville.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was, yeah. It was. Yes,
2: I know the Birdsville pub very well and uh, <laughs> I've seen the air strip there. It must have been real fun trying to put a DC3 down on it. Oh,
1: no, it was good and it was all right. It was plenty of length in it, but, Yeah. But th- at that pub there, the accommodation uh, part of it was a Pizé building. You know, the, they had mud and stone. They used to build them with, with walls about that thick. And one night... The moisture must have got into it and the whole lot just collapsed on the ground. Fortunately, there were no crew staying there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, whereabouts, where else did you uh, fly the... Oh, no, sorry, I should have gone back and said, tell us about uh, training on the Drover too because that's different from a DC-3.
1: Well, it was a single seat. There's no... You didn't have a, an instructor... In the in the you know in a normal airplane you've got the the captain sits there, and the first officer sits there, or the training uh, captain sits there, but he all you had to he put you in it and he stood behind you while you flew it. Now, you know you so I'd had a, quite a I'd be over two thousand hours when I went on to the driver, so I knew which way I was up, sort of thing, and so that's he just stood there and said a few circuits and that was your endorsement.
2: A lot of people would know the DC-3 but not so many the Drover. Would you like to explain the Drover to us?
1: Well, the, the Drover was a three-engine aeroplane developed by de Havillands initially as a sort of commuter aeroplane and we used that initially uh, in TAA on the Channel Country instead of... before the DC-3 came into into fashion. And, um... Uh, it was only... Uh, I've forgotten how many people uh, it carried because they used to juggle the seats around, but you'd probably get, say, eight passengers and a bit of freight. But it sort of at least provided a a mail service to those stations that we
2: used to... uh, Were the seats adjustable if you needed to take a stretcher in?
1: Well, actually, the stretcher sat on top of the the seats. OK. And... uh, and that's how uh, that was a normal configuration. and if you had to say uh, <coughs> if you picked up a patient quite often some of the the relatives would want to come into into the base with him. so uh, we, we had a few spare seats and um, that, that's how how they operated.
0: So it was a three engine three, aircraft yeah. as you say designed by de Havilland. How did it cope with the hot climate and the kind of conditions you were flying in?
1: All right, but the original engine had a variable pitch propeller, so you could juggle the pitch to, to fine pitch to get maximum power for takeoff, and then bring, bring it back into course for cruise. And something happened, and one blade flew off this uh, thing, came through the side of the fuselage, and hit the pilot on the on the foot, and and uh, he, he always limped after that. But as a result of that, they removed the, fix, the uh, variable pitch prop and put a fixed pitch on, which cut down on the performance a bit. But we managed. But um, yeah, well, actually, <coughs> you were sort of limited in climbing. On one occasion, I was at this. Uh, we were called out to uh, to this woman who was actually well on the way to, to giving childbirth and. Uh, The strip was um, was very marginal. Had big trees in the end of it, and I think was um, anyway one of the relatives wanted to accompany her into. I said no, we really can't take you. So we we took off without her. And uh, and the doctor was panicking, and he said, "Can't you go any faster?" I had the throttles pushed right up, and we got (laughs) in. We plonked her down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in Charleville and the ambulance met us and she had she had the baby in the ambulance on the way to the, mm. to the hospital, yeah.
0: So you were operating that aircraft at its maximum capacity, really, weren't you? Uh, it was on r- occasions. Sometimes, yes. Okay. Mm.
2: And what about air pockets and things like that when on the very um, very hot days of you can get out there? And,
1: yeah, uh, oh, was, it was a bit rough. And, see, unless you got above 10,000 feet, you couldn't get a smooth ride. But, see, see, sometimes you get those big whirly winds. Now, if you're on a, a dirt strip, you'd see it getting a, It'd be picking up the dust. But on one occasion coming into Charleville on the Bitsman, there was a whirl... I didn't see it. Well, you couldn't see it because it was on the Bitsman wasn't picking up. And as I went through it, the aeroplane was sort of... <laughs> ..all over the place. <laughs> yeah.
2: I guess the... Uh a, a sick passenger wouldn't care, though, because they were better off right. being mm. bounced around a little.
1: Oh, we, we did a smooth landing, but we were a bit rough going through this whirlywind.
0: And you mentioned whirlywinds. What about the dust? You know, there must have been oh. occasions where visibility was very well, in, poor.
1: In the time when I was out there, there were very dry periods in central Australia, and these fronts had come through and stir up the dust. And, and on one occasion, actually, I was in Alice Springs uh, doing driver relief, and we came south of Alice Springs and we moved forward and was, as we progressed further north towards Alice it was quite windy and dusty but we broke out of it and as far as you can see that way and that way there was a wall of dust just way up and, uh, and we were in clear air from the rest of the journey but uh, it was bad mm. uh, and, you know, trying to uh, find that even on the mail runs with the DC with 3, you had some pretty uh, <laughs> exciting times, shall we say, trying to find the, the strip in all the dust.
0: Was know? navigation a challenge?
1: Well, after a while, you'd flown the, the area so long that I never used a map. I knew, you know, for the little landmarks and things that were heading in the right direction.
0: So You didn't use maps?
1: Well, initially when I went out there, I had maps to get an idea. You didn't need them after a while. No,
0: yeah.
1: no. Unless you well, with a, with a flying doctor, if you're going to a place you didn't know, you'd you'd have the map on your your knee and you'd follow it as you as you went.
0: Yeah. So you're with TAA. You're you're seconded to the RFDS. Yes. When you come back to flying commercially with TAA, what do you what equipment are you on then? Would that have been the time of the of the Convairs or...? The
1: no, no, I never got it. Um, <clears throat> uh, well, I actually, when I finished my term out there in, in Charlotte, I came back to Brisbane and I was on DC-3s. Mm-hmm. But I was still a relief pilot on the driver. But then as uh, time progressed, the next aircraft to get onto was the F-27. And the so,
0: Fokker Friendship.
1: Yes, that's it. And that's what I flew... And until I got my command on the DC3.
0: And what sort of routes did the uh, Fokker Friendship do, do?
1: Mainly in Western Queensland, uh, well, the, we had one service that went uh, from Brisbane through you know, Blackall, Longreach, Winton, uh, Mount Isa, to, uh, to uh, Tennant Creek. Another one that went from Townsville out to Mount Isa, all stops. Another one that went up the coast as far as Cairns, and then occasionally uh, we do a uh, a Brisbane, Coolangatta, Williamtown, Sydney, and return. On a that was on the weekend, yes.
0: You say you had a technically had a command in the Drover because you're the only one That's on right, the flight yeah. deck, but then you became qualified as a to have a command of the DC three, correct? Yeah. And and ever after, then you were able to translate to different aircraft as they came on on online line and service. Yes, the
1: way the system worked, if you were a first officer and you moved from one aircraft to the next, and you'd go up the line, and then when you became a captain, you flew as a you were trained as a captain on that next aircraft and the next aircraft.
0: He so you're unmarried during this time. Uh, how, how did that affect the, uh, the kind of tasks you were given?
1: Well, I seem to be getting all these relief jobs uh, because it was easier for me to, to go to Concarry or Charters Towers without dragging, dragging your family around, you see. So.
0: And did you like being on relief and getting so many hours?
1: I did, yeah, it was in, well, you know, I flew all around the Gulf Country in, uh, out of Cloncurry and then out of Charter House we used to go right through to, to uh, Thursday Island. So it was, just, you got a fair, fair coverage of, the, of Queensland and also I used to do uh, relief at Alice Springs because that was the, the Northern Territory Medical Service had drivers.
0: Okay, so the Northern Territory Medical Service had drovers and you were on relief with them too at Alice Springs. Okay. So how did seniority work in those days? Uh, I know it's a big...
1: Well, it worked on a point system. And um, actually, if you were sent to... uh, Say you had a flight navigator's licence, you'd get half a point. And in theory, um, if you were sent out in the bush to, to some of the flying doctor stations you got half a point a year and the administration of TA made a dreadful mistake they pointed me to Charles when you got your letter of appointment and they said for this you'll get half a point a year and all of a sudden the penny dropped I wasn't entitled to half a point a year so they they sent me a signal and said you, you only, you're not going to get any, any half a point a year and I said well that's that's bad luck, isn't it? Because you had me out here for six months and I was under the impression that I was getting it. And anyway, we had a bit of an argument and they wanted to see the letter. And I said, no, I'm not sending you the letter because it would disappear, you see. <laughs> so in the finish, they gave me a quarter of a point for the time I'd served. And then...
0: Okay. Anyway, and Those points were worth a lot.
1: Well, see, and also you check. You'd get... Uh, when you did your uh, six-monthly check for your license, you'd get a if you did a good check, you'd get a bit of a point there. But then later on, uh, the senior all that stuff disappeared when they brought in the the formula pay system in 1966, and you just your seniority was purely on time. Mm. And the fellow that joined the day after you, he'd be a, a lower seniority than you is.
0: So in those days, can you can you tell us what CRM stands for, and what it was like in those days in the DC three flight deck, for example?
1: We'd never even heard of CRM in those days.
0: (laughs) Which stands for Cockpit Resource Management. And what is CRM?
1: Well, the idea. Say, for argument's sake, you're flying along and there's thunderstorms, and you'd say to the you'd have a bit of a conference and say, yeah, I think it's easier to be safer to go that way or that way, and that's. That's the style of uh, you. You talk to the captain. See, in the old days, when the thing started, when the airline started off, they were ex wartime captains, and uh, you know you never offered them any advice or anything. They were they were in command, and that was it. But that all disappeared when when they introduced this cockpit resource management. When was
0: that 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 became the standard? Are we talking the 1970s? Yeah, I can't really remember. That's uh, okay. But I, it would be about that period, yes. Mm. And so you, you you had both roles as First Officer and Captain. Uh, you have experience with both roles. Yes. Um, to me, uh, it seems so such a critical relationship between those two flying officers in an aircraft. Uh, did you have times that, where that was difficult or, or not satisfactory?
1: No, no, not really, no, because most of the DC-3 captains had come up through the ranks in the airline. They weren't, they weren't ex-wartime blokes. It was only the the, 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 the wartime blokes at that stage had gone on to Viscounts and DC4s and so, but I never flew those because I was spending all my time in the bush. I never got round to, but whereas some of the blokes I joined TA with, they almost went on to, uh, immediately on to Viscounts.
0: The Vickers Viscounts. As a first officer,
1: yeah. Right. And they'd sort of, they'd they'd have a bit of a clash with the captain. Most of them were were fairly good, but it was the odd one that he mummed the captain sort of thing and... uh, what I say? Goes.
0: Yes. And that was essentially why CRM was developed, wasn't it? Was, it, uh, it was as yes. a standard practice. Yeah. yeah. So you, were you check captain for DC threes
1: later on. I was. Yes. yes.
0: So let's let's go up to about well, that's nineteen sixty six or so in that era. <laughs> Here I am testing your memory.
1: Well, in sixty sixty seven, yeah, about in in the late 60s yeah.
0: And was the role of a Czech captain then essentially the same as it is now? Yes, yes. What What did a Czech captain do?
1: Well, you'd fly on the line with the, with the, uh, the Czech E and uh, observe what he was doing and uh, you might get him to do an instrument approach uh, back in Brisbane if you were doing that. Uh, and then we used to have You'd have to uh, practice asymmetric. Asymmetric is, is shutting one engine down, and um, so we had a period of. We used to call it local training. You'd you'd um, we either go over to Amberley, where the, where there wasn't too much traffic around, or sometimes you'd do it in Brisbane and you'd do a few uh, asymmetric circuits and, uh, and a flapless circuit and an, uh, an ILS approach. So there were two phases of your licence renewal as a line check and the, and, the, and the local check.
0: And as a check captain, you would sign off on yes. the, the captain you were checking. That's yeah. correct, yeah. Yeah. yes. So what, what role did you develop? I think it was uh, um, 1966. You, you, you developed a, a regional uh, management role as well, didn't
1: yes. you? Yes, I was a, the second assistant regional captain. And what did that involve? Well, we'd have to liaise with the with the Department of Civil Aviation over various things, uh, and on you know aerodromes uh, that weren't up to scratch, uh, and um, there were other committees they had uh, on on various subjects. Uh, we'd we'd have to attend those, and um, and then uh, the administration of the. The pilot's contract and any and sort of you were the centre point there for for the uh, operations uh, staff and and the flight staff. And they, if they had a problem, they'd they come to you and you'd have to
0: try and sort it out. And but you still got to fly. That didn't keep you on a oh, desk, did it?
1: No. Well, in those at that stage of the game, this formula pay system was introduced, and if you were a, a management tour pilot. You got well. First of all, you had to bid for your own flying. They'd make out blocks of flying for the month, and on your seniority, uh, you'd get the best block. If, if you're the lower man on the totem pole, all the the blocks that had the well sort of flying that wasn't uh, how shall we say it wasn't the best. It was. And so you'd end up with that sort of flying. And then if you were that, your seniority was that low, they also had reserve blocks. So the whole block was made up of reserve days and you'd end up on a reserve block, which, you know, you, you couldn't maintain a standard on that because quite often you'd go for days on end and you wouldn't get a flight. Mm. So... Um, but anyway, that's what they uh, what they, agree, they, um, they gr- agreed they they agreed to those um, that system with the uh, uh, pilots' federation, and that's what we uh, we flew on. Yes.
2: We
1: we,
0: we hear, Sorry, go on.
1: But if you were a management pilot, you could get twenty hours, and then you could bid for another ten hours in your own right, and the rest of the time you'd be. Doing administrative duties, yes.
0: and you still had your thousand years. It's just that thousand hours a year maximum that you yes, could fly. That's right, yeah, yes. and that still applies today. It
1: does, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, there are other uh, things. The actual time on duty uh, limits you too, so mm. you sort of um, get to the stage where your duty time overrode the, the actual flying time. But basically, it, it hasn't changed. It's the basic thing is a thousand hours. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, from the DC threes and the F twenty sevens, where did you move from there?
1: Well, at that stage of the game, we were getting rid of the DC threes in the in the Channel Country and out on the Darling Downs, and we we're replacing them with twin otters. And because uh, there was another two two of our friends of mine that were Czech captains on DC threes. We put our hand up and said, "We'd like to help you introduce or be involved in the introduction of the Twin Otter." So that's what we did. We trained. We, we first of all did local flying to, to you know get the feel of the aeroplane, and then you'd do the route flying to train them. So we did that for, for quite a while, but we were still sort of classified as a as a friendship captain. You were paid as a friendship captain, but we were actually flying. Flying
0: otters, yes. The uh, the rivalry or the competition, shall we say, between TAA and Ansett um, was the mainstay of of local flying um, competition, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering how it how did it feel to wear the TAA uniform? You know, was that a, a prestigious thing to do? Did you feel how did you feel about being part of that company?
1: It's, a, it's hard to, to answer because, you know, I was very happy with TAA and I always, I never knocked back an assignment and um, the fact that you wore a uniform, you know, I'd worn an Air Force uniform and the uniform at the Aero Club so it was, was sort of just second nature.
0: So for you it was all about the flying, not about the company itself in particular?
1: They used to say some blokes joined the airlines for the for the flag and some joined them for the money
0: yeah <laughs> yeah well, it was an incredibly good thing, I think was it for the for the for Australia to have that competition because there was uh, i mean there were there were factors that perhaps weren't ideal, but there was a lot of competition wasn't there
1: there was between the the two come the two airlines in mm. years, but no we had a lot of friends in in nat. My cousin actually was an Ensign pilot, and I joined. I joined, uh, joined TIA, but uh, but then you see, um, each base ha- had certain spares, and if an Ensign airplane say uh, a generator failed, you, they'd come across the TIA and get a, a spare generator, and the same we'd. We'd go to them, so there was that sort of at at that level of the engineering. There was a lot of cooperation between the airlines. It's uh, mm. it's only up at the top of the scale where they used to sort
2: of eye each other off. During yeah. those times, uh, were they uh, ANSET and TAA flying more or less similar aircraft? Yes, um, but they didn't. They didn't
1: fly in Western Queensland. They. They did a bit of country flying in, in uh, New South Wales, but they were DC-3s and Friendships and then later on DC-9s and seven two seven. so they were similar types. And I think, if, say for argument's sake, in TIA you decide to you're going to replace uh, the, the DC-9 with Aircraft B. Now, unless ANCID agreed to it, you couldn't do it because we want, we want to buy... Caravels at one stage of the game, but Answers weren't too keen on it, so the whole the whole thing collapsed. We never got them.
0: Yes. It was government policy, wasn't That's it, right. that the two airlines had yeah. to agree that on their aircraft?
1: Virtually similar aircraft,
0: yes. Mm. And yet, it was TAA that introduced the Airbus A three hundred, wasn't it? Yes. Which was, I, correct me if I am wrong, the first wide wide-bodied jet to come into Australia.
1: Well, there was the. the um, 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 God, she' had a, had an aeroplane, it was an American aeroplane. Um, I can't think of the name was of it. Was that the
0: Electra or?
1: No, it was uh, beyond the Electra. Okay. It was, uh, the 767? What's that? The 767? That's 767, that's it, yes. Which was a similar aeroplane to the Airbus. So there was no argument about. Answered getting that and us getting the the A300, yes.
2: Mm. And that uh, 767, because that was... I flew in one uh, in the very early stages. I was pretty excited about it. Um, Now, that was a four-engine aircraft, am I correct?
1: No, it was only... uh, It was only two? Yeah, the Viscounts were four-engine and the DC-6s the DC-4s... But no, I think it was only a, a two engine the same as the Airbus, yes.
2: Right, okay, yes. So did you ever graduate to a four engine aircraft?
1: Never flown a four engine aircraft in my whole flying career. <laughs> the best I could do was three.
2: <laughs> and that was the drover. And the
1: seven two seven.
2: Of course, yes. 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 <laughs> but
0: now, I guess this inevitably brings us up to... At this time, you're the A3, A300 A captain. Yes. You're with TAA. You've got a lot of seniority and experience with the airline. And Australia encounters the now so-called airline pilots dispute Yes, in 1989. Every dispute, not strike. Yes, it was a dispute for sure. <laughs> exactly. So just explain to us what that was. What was this dispute?
1: Well... And then basically they were looking for a 30% pay increase, was slightly below 30 but in round figures was 30%. At that stage Bob Hawke had the, the Wages Accord.
0: That's the Prime Minister.
1: Yes. And here, here you have 1,600 airline pilots wanting to go outside the system. Well, if they'd granted the 30% increase to the pilots, everybody else would have their hand out wanting an increase. So that's why he he fought it.
0: And what was the result?
1: Well, all the pilots resigned. All the airline pilots just resigned from the company. So uh, I didn't because I was a management pilot and I thought... I'd worked, you know, hard for TIA, but also they were very good to me, and I, and I, um, determined that if you were management, they didn't expect you to go to water, and that's why I, I kept going. Okay, I lost a lot of friends out of it, but I, I was happy to, uh, to accept that, and I made more friends, and and, and the new air pilots that we brought into the airline is. Yes. But it went on for a long time, and the fellas, McCarthy, who was the head of the uh, federation, he managed to keep them, think, most of the fellows together. But uh, I think they, you know, they really backed the wrong horse, and a lot of careers. They, they, well, they couldn't get a job in Australia; they had to go overseas, and you know, the terrible disruptions in the families, where the pilots were overseas and the families had to stay in in, in Australia and. It was it was a very nasty episode all round.
0: And you say it went on for a long time. So that was it began in nineteen eighty nine. Eighty
1: nine and went right into ninety. Mm-hmm. and I think towards the middle of ninety they finally said, Oh well you can go back to TAA and go back to TAA and answer it. But at that stage of the game we'd rebuilt the airline and there weren't that many vacancies, uh, So Anyway, so you know I know ch-
2: that there was an awful lot of Australian pilots flying Cathay Pacific out of Hong Kong. Yes, because I was flying in that area, and you'd get a uh, an announcement on the football results or mm. something coming over from the pilot's cap- cabin. Yeah, uh, I can record one stage where uh, Collingwood was beaten in something fairly prestigious, and the whole plane erupted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, mind you, uh, Cathay was a very favourite place to to do. Uh, because they they were the highest paid airline pilots in the world, mm. and even before the dispute, a lot of people went to went to Cathay. They had a big contingent of of expats in the airline. Yes,
2: yes. Well, so, uh, but there's still enough uh, pilots to keep the Australian market going.
1: Yes, yeah, uh, in its heyday. Yes, I know. We we never had any trouble with uh, getting the numbers, keeping the numbers up in. In the domestic airline, so no.
0: so once the dispute was, it settled down and uh, things were moving ahead. Do you feel how did that change the airline industry in Australia?
1: Well, I don't think it really did. They just they some of the fellows came back and uh, and they employed other people from overseas and and uh, just sort of. Went on that?
0: Did it change the award structure that you operated under?
1: Well, it did slightly, but to be quite honest, I didn't take much notice of it because, as a as a um, a management pilot, you got a certain amount and plus a little bit of allowance for management, and I always thought I was very well paid. So, and. What they did at the finish, I can't really remember because I used to, I was flying all the time because I was made a training captain on the on the Airbus and I was flying and I wasn't really worried about the award. Maybe I'm a bit
0: odd. <laughs> so did you fly A300s up until your retirement? I did. And when did you retire?
1: On, uh, in '92 on the, uh, I know yet. We had, my birthday was the 24th. Actually, the 23rd
0: was the last day I flew. So at that point, there was the merger going on between what was, what was now Australian Airlines, that used to be TAA, and Qantas. Yes. So you were there still when that was happening. Uh,
1: yes. That was in sort of... They were starting to... You could see effects of it in 91. And uh, actually, I had 100 days in Qantas before I had to retire, yeah.
0: 100 good days. (laughs) And TAA, Australian Airlines, is no more and uh, that was an era that came to an end then. Yes. Um,
1: Well, actually it was with TAA and then in the mid-80s it was changed to Australian Airlines because James Strong, who had taken over as the CEO, reckoned that, you know, in the phone book you want to be up the front of it and so Australian and TAA were... It was, was a better option to get the pole position in the phone book for people wanting to fly.
0: Alphabetical order, yeah. ANSET was still ahead of Australian Airlines. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when did uh, Ansett cease operations? It went on for quite some time after that, didn't it? It did. Doesn't matter. We don't need to talk about the date about Ansett because that's not really... I shouldn't have just thrown that in there.
2: Well, I know they were still flying, but not long after 1996... Yes. Because right. I did an international flight with set to Hong Kong. It was yeah. their only international um, uh, see, destination. Yes, And uh, that was 96 and it wasn't that long after A, the, about uh, that About
1: that period, annals, yes. yes.
0: Mm. So by the time of your retirement in 92, how many flying hours did you have?
1: Well, uh, I mean, 19, 19,400 or something like that. But,
0: but you the, went on flying then after you left?
1: Well... There's a mate of mine, actually, when I was instructing the Aero Club, I took him on his first dual cross-country, which you had to do before you did your solo one, and his instructor was away sick this day, so I actually took him on that trip, and then he, um, he eventually joined East West Airlines, and so used to run into him up and down the coast, and um, when we came up here, he was running this joint flight business, and... One of my friends gave me a joy flight uh, ticket, and I said, "No, I'm going to throw my licence in the rubbish tin. I'm not going to fly again." And uh, Judas said, "No, it was your." I said, "You go and have the flight." No, she said, "It was given to you." So eventually, I did, and um, um, in in the tiger, he was flying a tiger moth, and so. um, he said, he, 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 and I put the, the stick in, you know, to have a little bit of a fly, and then he said to me, I've never seen my aeroplane fly. He said, you better take it for a circuit. And after that, he uh, he said, why don't you come and uh, and uh, give me a hand with the, with the uh, joyflighting? The pay's not too good, but uh, I said, yeah, that'd suit me because I just like flying. I didn't care about the pay at that stage of the game. So we did that for... Uh, quite a few years until we both had a bypass operation within a couple of months of each other. So after that, you couldn't fly for six months. Because that was the requirement of the of the medical situation. And um, so we just had... We, re- we reverted to a private category and uh, we, we rebuilt a couple of aeroplanes. Uh,
0: for something to do. <laughs> Which probably brings us nicely to the Queensland Air Museum because at the moment you are working on the restoration yeah. of a Tiger Moth, aren't you? T- are. Tell us about that project.
1: Well, there was a um, fellow here called Tom Mackle and Tom, I knew from, he was a, um, a surveyor's off outside with the Brisbane City Council and I used to run into him when we used to go, we used to go camping up at 1770 with the kids and Sort of, and then he moved, he was retired up here, and he used to wander over to the hangar and see what we were doing. and And at that stage of the game, they were working on the DC three, and they had this great big aileron. and I said, "Could you cover that for us?" So we had it over in the hangar, and we we put a new new uh, covering on and everything. And then they had an oster which <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> which they achieved somewhere along the line, and they said, and because we had Osters, we'd, we'd rebuilt an oyster in the hangar, and they said, would you come and do that? So we had a bit of a wire cage down in, in hangar number two here, and we had uh, the Oster there, and we worked on it, and um, at that stage of the game, we were only honorary members, but after a year, we thought we'd better, better become full members, so that's what we did, and... So that was the first restoration and then we'd hardly finished that and we got another one. we ended up doing about six restorations and rebuilds, plus um, a lot of fabric work on the uh, DC-3. We finished all the control services on that and the uh, Dove and the Heron and that sort of thing. So we we managed to keep ourselves fully occupied with with restorations, but only on the fabric aeroplanes because... No one, he really knew much about fabric work. We'd done a a lot over in in our hangar, you see.
0: And I'm not sure if many people realise that even metal aircraft, many of them have fabric-covered control surfaces. Uh, See,
1: the Tiger Moth, the fuselage, is actually metal, and Hmm. you put the fabric
0: on that. So there's a lot of work for fabric uh, restoration, isn't there? And you're rebuilding a Tiger Moth now? We are, yes. What's that aircraft?
1: What's the registration of
0: it? Well, what, what was its history what, what are you, oh, uh, and how are right. you restoring it?
1: Well, it came out, it came out actually an RAF aeroplane and it was sent out to uh, Western Australia during the war. It served its time in the Air Force and then it was sold for £65 and someone bought it and they were doing uh, crop spraying and the tiger were used for fish spotting in Western Australia. So it spent its whole time in Western Australia. And then somehow or other the someone got it and donated it to the to the QAM. Yeah.
0: And you're restoring it to that livery, the, the crop dust oh, uh, I
1: really wanted to be restored to the Air Force colours because it played a big part in the Empire air training scheme and that 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 trained, you know, forty or fifty thousand pilots. And I said we haven't got a, a, a replica, anything, yeah, no reference to the Empire Air Training Scheme here. We should do that in its air force colours. But they said, no. And I said, you mean to say you, you want a baggy old ass <laughs> 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 tiger moth in, done in a spraying configuration? Yes, we want that. So we still believe that it should have been done, but the point is we the shit kickers around the place. And if higher authority says you will do that, <laughs> <laughs> you do it. And it is do a
0: tiger it. moth, and that's what we need. We, we, yeah. It will be wonderful to have a tiger moth fully restored yeah.
1: here, and in the Empire Air Training Scheme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So that's the way it goes. But uh, but still, all no, even though we don't we don't agree with it, we're still doing the best job we can on this particular airplane. And there's a lot of fiddly stuff you know it was it had been restored but very badly and there's a lot of corrosion and rust so we had to sort of clean that out and then in the control box the wood started to sort of disappear and so we actually it's almost uh, back on its feet uh or its wheels so to <laughs> within the next uh couple of wednesdays we'll have it back on its wheels and then we can start covering the the, the turtle deck which is the back uh, from the back cockpit to the tail, and put the fabric on the sides, and
2: mm. so. Uh, Where do you source the fabric, Stuart?
1: Well, uh, there's a crowd down at um, at Caboolture that that uh, supply the the dope and the fabric and the glue and everything. Oh, great! And it's called it's Seconite, and there's various grades of it. There's one, oh one, one oh two, one oh three, <laughs> and with that stuff, you just glue it to the to the fuselage loosely. And then you get a household iron and rub it over, and that tautens
2: Yes.
1: Up. When in the old days, the actual dope on cotton used to tauten up the yep. dope.
2: Yes. And how thick, if you like, is the uh, fabric? Bed sheets thickness or yes, heavier?
1: something like that, yeah. Right. That, that's very thin. Yeah, because
2: this is brand new to me. I'm yes. happy to learn.
1: But we put, we'll see. In in World War One, the aeroplanes were glued together with, and they'd catch fire. And so, so what we do now oh, is we that put nitrate. Nitrate. Sorry, mm, yeah. you would put nitrate, the first coat of nitrate on it. You glue mm. it on, and you either brush or spray nitrate on it. And then um, there's butrate, which is first of all the silver colour, which uh, protects it against the anti-virus. Um, ultraviolet. Yes. And then you put your top coat on, which is the colour that you want the aeroplane in, you see. But you've got to get it in the right sequence. Yeah. And, um, oh, no, it's quite an interesting process. It yes.
2: uh, I'll uh, have to catch up and come and have a look at the last little bit because I've been a bit errant from uh, yeah. uh, my duties down here. And yeah.
1: uh, Oh, no, come over and have a look. We might get you... On the job.
0: (laughs) Need a lift any Tuesday or Wednesday. Stuart, this has been very, very interesting. Thank you. Do you feel like we've missed anything important in this this career we've been describing?
1: Oh.
2: That you'd Uh, like to talk about
0: now?
1: No, I think we should have.
2: I'd like to just bring up a a little bit on the DC3. I know you're also doing a bit of work on that. Uh, Can you explain what you've been doing there, uh, Stuart?
1: Well... The only work that we did was, was all the control surfaces are fabric covered like right. the rudder, the elevators and the ailerons yes and um, we 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 did them and it was out in the paddock and a hailstorm came and shredded it all so we had to do it all again <laughs> and I said unless you put this thing under cover, we won't be doing the next uh, <laughs> recovery so that's what they that's why it's there but um, no, we haven't done any of the metal work or anything no, like that. Yes. And there's a lot of corrosion in it that uh, that Robbie Wallace is doing. They've taken the in the roof, they've cut that out and replaced it with with aluminium. Yes.
2: Yes. So, how you've just about finished the fabric uh, coating now that you're undercover? cover. Uh, what was that? So the fabric covering that you're yeah. doing for the DC three. Yeah, yes. Have you finished that project now? Or? Oh,
1: that was a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. No. It was after we did the did the control service the second time, they put it in the in here, in that, no, it's and it's been it,
2: completed. Yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So. But,
0: well, thank you, Stuart. I yeah. think we've uh, we've done uh, we've done our best to yeah. do justice to the story, and uh, it's because we wanted to preserve these stories that we've established the oral history project. Yeah. This will be available to listeners. It'll be available in the library as a transcript, and there will be any of the documents that you're providing for us will be associated with that, yeah. so people can access this uh, in perpetuity. And we appreciate very much that you've made this gift oh, to the to the uh, the, the ongoing Going story of aviation in Australia. Thank you.
1: Well, now those you. you